Welcome back to another volume of Truly Disturbing Tales from Reddit. Today we're going to be narrating three new unsettling stories taken directly from the platform. I encourage you all to sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy these terrifying personal accounts. Now, without any further delay, let's jump right in. I am and have been a paramedic for about 10 years now. My entire career has been spent in emergency medicine, responding to 911 calls and providing advanced life support for life-threatening illnesses and injuries. The calls that we respond to range from inappropriate use of an ambulance to being minutes away from death. And oftentimes, it's already too late. If you've heard any of my other stories here, then you know the background. But in 2014, I moved to another city a couple of hours away from home to work. The city was smallish, less than 100,000 people, but the ambulance serviced the entire county where the city resides. At the time, there was a significant oil boom in the area, so thousands of people flooded the city and county to work in the oil fields nearby. This caused the city to get a little rougher as you had people from all over the country moving there to work. And that many people in a small place increased the cost of living. With that, we saw a large increase in violent crimes, as well as traumatic injuries. We as paramedics worked 24-hour shifts, which weren't too bad on their own. The days were usually somewhat busy, and at night, the ambulance station had rooms with twin beds that allowed you to get some fairly decent sleep. Most of the calls that would classify as crazy, creepy, or scary, those tended to come at night. The day that this story takes place was a little different than normal. Normally, I get an EMT basic partner, which means, since I'm the advanced provider on the truck, I get all of the patients. But today, I had another paramedic partner, because we were training in a new hire paramedic. It was her first day in FTO, Field Training Orientation. This means we generally let her take the calls and sit back and evaluate her performance to ensure she's capable and doesn't kill anyone. This was her first job after graduation, so she was still pretty green. I could see she was very nervous and trying her hardest to do her best. So, as per usual, the day was pretty busy, but as it began to wind down, I was getting ready to attempt to take a nap. I kick off my boots and lay down on the bed, on top of the covers, because it's easier to get up that way if and when a call comes in. I put my radio up by my head, full volume, like always, so I can be sure to wake up if we get a call. Sure enough, as midnight rolls around, I hear a call go out. Dispatch says, man who has been stabbed is not breathing. Luckily, it's not my call, and another ambulance responds, so I go back to bed, or at least try to. About 30 minutes later, another call goes out, and this time, it's for me. Dispatch information. Man with a knife wound on his hands. Police are already on scene. I sit up, get my boots on, wake up the new girl and my partner, and we all walk out to the ambulance. 
the area of the call was right smack dab in the middle of downtown. We responded non-emergent, as it was not a life-threatening injury. As we arrive on scene, there's around six police cars already on the block, all with their lights on. The area itself was through an alleyway and behind a building just off of the main street. As we pull up, there are a number of officers, a couple sheriff's deputies, and a detective, all standing around this man with a rag on his hand. As I got closer, I could see the man was bald, middle-aged, and had almost a homeless look to him. He also had a big dark spot right in the middle of his forehead. One of the officers approached me to fill me in on what was going on before I talked to the guy and begin treatment on him. The officer tells me the man has a large laceration on the back of his hand that he received from a knife. At this point, I was still a bit groggy and didn't quite put two and two together. The officer says the man said he was attacked by another man and that he is probably going to need stitches. So, as it's not serious, I have the training paramedic approach first to begin her assessment and give me her treatment plan. I stay close behind her and we both walk up to the man who is in handcuffs. As we approach, the dark spot on the guy's forehead is now clear. On the center of his forehead, stretching from his eyebrows and what would have been his hairline, is the biggest swastika tattoo that I have ever seen. My FTO begins to talk to the man as I stand back and observe. Something about the man's general composure and responses absolutely chilled me. When we first walked up, the man was muttering something underneath his breath. I couldn't tell what he was saying, but he was repeating it over and over again. My FTO asked police to uncuff him to see the cut on his hand more clearly. At this point, one of the other officers produced the knife he believed to be the weapon that caused the injury. The knife was in an evidence baggie, and it was covered in blood. The knife itself was nothing special. It just looked like a cheap plastic pocket knife, like you would buy at some cheesy gift shop. It was a folding knife with a black plastic handle, and a blade that was no more than three inches long, with a bit of serration towards the handle. The man showed us his hand, on the back, cutting right through another large swastika tattoo, was a laceration that went from the base of his pinky finger to the lower fleshy part of the thumb. It was quite wide also, approximately three centimeters, exposing the bone of his metacarpals as well as tendons. The bleeding had mostly stopped with pressure from the towel he was holding onto. When my partner asked the man what had happened, the man then repeated to us what he had been repeatedly muttering to himself. I killed him, man. He's a dead man. I had to have killed him. He's gotta be dead. At this point, I'm starting to put it together and understanding the larger picture. We get the man into the ambulance so we can assess for any further injuries that we may not see under his clothing. After a thorough search, we realize there are no other injuries, so we begin to transport him to the hospital. My FTO bandaged the man's hand, and as we're driving, I start to ask questions to try to figure out the details. The man told me everything I wanted to know, and never lost that chilling vibe, 
staring distantly as he recounted what had happened. The man told me that he is homeless and was wandering around when a friend offered him a ride. He says that he was leery of the man, but decided to get in anyway and accept the offer. The man said the friend began asking him if he hated The man said he didn't and that he wasn't racist. He tells me this is when his friend became upset with him and tried to stab him with a pocket knife. The man said he attempted to defend himself, managed to wrestle the knife away from his friend, and stabbed him back before jumping out of the car and running. So, with this shocking telling of the tale, we continue to transport the man in silence. Also, as a side note, an officer rode in the ambulance with us the whole way. After we dropped the man off at the ER, we all kind of sat there shocked leaving the hospital. We returned to the ambulance station and tried to get some sleep. However, none of us were destined for sleep this evening. An hour later, we get another call for a body removal from downtown, less than three blocks away from our last call. We pull up to the area, which is the middle of the street. The street itself is blocked off 100 feet on both sides by a fire truck and police cars. The fire truck was equipped with a double stack of four halogen lights, risen up on the ladder, shining down to illuminate the area. Walking up with the stretcher and body bag, the detective on scene tells us they are done with the investigation to the medical examiner's office. At this point, we're about 50 feet away from where the body lay. From where we are, I can see the person lying in the middle of the street. We get closer and take a few minutes to examine the body. What I see, and putting together what I was told, is astonishing to say the least. The man, another middle-aged man, appears white, possibly Latin, laying in the middle of the street on his back, with his arms spread eagle and his legs straight out. There's a vehicle parked on the side of the road, with its driver's side door still open. I figured that must be this guy's vehicle. It was parked neatly, not haphazardly or incorrectly. The deceased man has streaks of blood coming from his nose and mouth, with several small puncture wounds on his face and cheeks. Looking at his torso, there are about a dozen more knife-shaped puncture wounds in his chest and abdomen. Most of the wounds were so jagged and barbaric looking, you could see fatty tissue pushing out of them. There wasn't much of a blood puddle under the man, but a very long trail of blood ran from the man to the side of the street where the curb was. The blood then continues its flow another 10 feet along the curb before spilling into a storm drain. With that much blood loss, the man had exsanguinated and bled out there in the middle of the street. We packaged the man into the body bag and transported him to the ME's office. When we got back to the station, my charge medic told me that the officer that rode with the first patient requested that we fill out a report on what we heard the man say. Thankfully, the rest of that shift was rather uneventful. From that night, I'm going to fast forward about a year. I received a call from the state's attorney. He asked me if I remembered this call, to which I informed him that I did. He told me that the first patient from that evening is going to trial for murder, that that man is pleading not guilty 
and that the attorney would like to go over my statement with me, as I would be a key witness and require my testimony in court. We went over my statement, and we talked about it a bit. Then he told me he would be in touch, and wished me a good day. A few days later, he calls me back up again, and informs me that the man has changed his plea to self-defense, and that I was needed in court in a week. Literally a day before the trial, the attorney calls me up again. He tells me this time the man changed his plea to guilty, and I would be no longer needed. I don't know what happened after that. I never really looked into it. It's just another brick in the wall, so to speak. A story filed away in my brain, probably never to be forgotten. Another story about encountering somebody on possibly the worst day of their life, or in other cases, the last day of someone's life. We had an older couple that lived next door to us when I was growing up. They didn't have any kids and never had any family over to visit or anything. Just the two of them. The guy was a little quirky, but he was retired and just liked to stay busy, so he would do things like go out and find a broken bike someone had put by the curb or something electronic, then take the junk back to his place and try to fix it in his shed in the backyard. He truly was one of those one-man's-trash type of guys, and just liked fixing things. He would do all this in his little red shed in the middle of his backyard that had a full workshop in it. Once a year, our block would get together and do a whole weekend where we did a big yard sale and people could come walk house to house looking over stuff. And it actually got a good amount of people since it was in the early 90s then, and you couldn't just pop on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace for some used stuff. I ran a little lemonade stand myself to get in on it as well. So, this old guy was in his backyard a lot, hiding out in the shed, fixing whatever prize he had brought home that day. The only window on that shed faced our backyard. Whenever I would go out to play in the backyard, I would hear growling and roaring come from the shed. I was very young back then, probably five or six, so I would get curious about the noise and go up to the fence, pushing my face up against it, staring at the shed while it was making all of these crazy noises. At some point, the man had come out and told me that he has a tiger in his shed. That was where it lived, and that's why I kept hearing it. I'm like five, so of course I think it's the coolest thing ever that my neighbor has a tiger. So every time I hear it, I would run over to the fence and try to watch for that tiger, even though the small window on the side of the shed had blinds on it and I wasn't seeing in. Obviously, I eventually grew up enough to start questioning this. Plus, me and my mom had walked over there one day and the old guy's wife sent us out back to the shed to ask if he could fix something for us. I got to see inside then and realized there was no tiger and that he was just messing around with me the whole time. But I did see that his work desk was directly under the window. I never thought anything of it. Just some nice old guy who liked tinkering in his shed. My mom would also send me over to their house sometimes when they said that they had something for me. I'd go over, and that man and his wife would be in the living room 
just watching TV. There they would hand me a bag with like two handfuls of candy in it. Sometimes they would give me a bag of tacos for my dad. This man's wife was Hispanic and made some absolutely amazing authentic tacos. I'd sit down for a few minutes and they would ask me how I liked school or if I was doing well. Stuff you would talk to a kid about. After a couple of minutes of this, they would send me home. It seemed normal to me as a kid because it happened weekly. Sometimes, that man would even give me a toy that he had fixed. Outside looking in, sounds like this completely normal old couple that was just super nice and neighborly. But soon after, another family moved in down the street. This family was made up of a husband and a wife and a three-year-old baby girl. And the wife was rather paranoid. She went house to house and met everyone on the block when she moved in. Then, she checked to see if anyone she just met was a registered sex offender. I grew up in the 90s, and I was a kid at this point, so I don't know if this behavior was completely normal or if it was weird. But come to find out, this lady's paranoia wasn't misleading. The guy neighbor that had been watching me grow up all these years, giving me candy, fixing toys, turned out to have multiple child molestation charges against him. No one in our neighborhood knew. And back then, the internet wasn't exactly in every house, so getting information like that would have been on the person trying to find out. What this woman learned, she shared with my parents all of the information she got. I was no longer allowed anywhere near those people, even though I was too old for it to matter being basically a teenager now. I think back on all the weird crap that we accepted as normal and just how much time I spent watching for the tiger. My skin crawls, just wondering what was going on in that shed, what was causing all that roaring and growling I was enamored with. It also makes sense why that couple never had any visitors or children around. No family coming by, even on the holidays. The wife had grown up children, but they never came by. If her kids had kids of their own, they may have known not to drop by. It's really creepy knowing that no matter how much you know your neighbors, you actually don't know your neighbors at all. I, a 24-year-old female, was at the gym just doing cardio on the treadmill. It was pretty empty there. Not very many people on a Thursday afternoon. I always use the treadmills in front of the mirrors so I can pay attention to my surroundings like a safe young woman should. I was on a treadmill two away from the end and all of them were empty save for one at the opposite end of where I was. This man gets on the treadmill right next to me which is weird in and of itself, but okay. I had my headphones on and I'm watching Criminal Minds, but every so often I look up at the mirrors just to check my surroundings. And every time I glance up, this man is staring at me. Around 37 minutes in to my 45 minutes of planned cardio, this guy drops his phone off the side of his treadmill closest to me. I was watching in the mirror as it happened and he basically threw it down next to me, 
That's when he gets off the treadmill, picks his phone up, and then taps me on the shoulder. Now, at no point during this interaction did I take my headphones out, so I couldn't really hear what he was saying. I did hear that he introduced himself, although I didn't quite catch his name. And then he asked me my name. I gave a fake one, all the while still focusing on my workout. He then said something else, but I couldn't decipher it because Derek Morgan got into a shootout. I just nodded and returned to my show, clearly uninterested in whatever he had to say to me. At this point, I only had like five minutes left, but once again, every time I looked in the mirror, he was looking directly at me. I finished my workout and went to the stretching area that is near the treadmills, still in front of the mirrors. I also took a glance at how long he'd been on the treadmill, and it was something like eight minutes, so not actually long enough to be a real workout, or honestly even a warm-up. When I moved to the stretching area, he moved to the closest machine, all the while still staring at me. Using the mirror, I started counting his sets and reps, so in the middle of his next set, I got up and left, thinking this would give me enough time to get to my car and leave before he even noticed I was gone. I walked out the front doors of the gym with a little speed to my steps. Not quite a run, but definitely not lingering any longer than I needed to. I beeped my car to open the doors for me, got to my driver's side, and went to sit down. In the half second between starting the car and reaching for my seatbelt, my passenger side door is flung wide open. I dart my eyes over just in time to see Jim Guy leaning down, looking at me, and attempting to swing a leg into my car as if he wants to sit shotgun. I instinctively yell, Don't f touch my car, as I throw my car into drive and quickly floor it out of the spot with both doors still wide open and Jim Guy laying on the ground in response to how fast I pulled out. For those wondering, yes, my pullout game is strong. And yes, I back into parking spots because I read an article one time that said it was the safest thing to do if there was ever a need to flee quickly. I made it out of the parking lot and a half mile down the road with my passenger side door still open before I felt safe enough to pull over and close it. All the while, doing my best to make sure I wasn't followed out by treadmill bro. The next day, I went back to the gym to report this guy, but like I said earlier, I never got his name, and the gym didn't want to look at the cameras with me present. They said that once they figured out who it was, they would talk to him, which left me feeling as if they weren't going to do a thing about the situation. So, after dwelling on this incident for another night, I canceled my membership to that gym and don't ever plan on going back. I don't know what that guy's plans were or why he would even entertain the thought that jumping into my car was a good idea. And it sketches me out to think, what if I didn't respond the way that I did? What skews me out just as much is that I told my gym what happened, gave them the info I had, and they pretty much just waved me away. After this experience, I decided not to go back and have since found a better spot to work out, but what about the next girl that this happens to? 
will she have to endure something much worse because the gym didn't take any kind of action when they could? I don't know, but I certainly hope not.